All right, Revelation chapter 9. We took a small break from our regular horror story to celebrate our Lord's resurrection. But now we return. (laughs) We are here in chapter 9 in the middle of the trumpet judgments, and after the first four trumpets uh, were blown and the judgments ensued, an angel flew throughout the earth warning those uh, who still resisted Christ's claim to the earth that three horrible judgments were still incoming. And we saw the first horror a couple weeks ago when the demon locusts were loosed on the world for a period of time. In verse 12, at the end of that judgment, John warned that two more horrible judgments were already in transit, and verse 13 signals that the first of those two have arrived. And as horrifying as this judgment will be, the greatest horror will be the world's response to the Lord. So Revelation 9, we begin in verse 13. And the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying, to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth, and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads." And with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. So the sixth angel in verse 13, he blows his trumpet And a voice speaks from out of the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, the four horns, the golden altar was the altar of incense that was in the tabernacle. Uh, It was placed in the holy place. You had to the right, if you walked into the tabernacle, you had to the right, you had the table of showbread, the left, you had the golden menorah, and then right in front of the curtain that led to the Holy of Holies, you had the golden altar of incense. Sacrifices were not offered on that altar. Incense was. And so that's the altar that's in mind here, the golden altar, which is right in front of the throne of God. And, and the horns that would come up, the four horns in the four corners of this square altar, it mentions the voice comes from out of these, where these horns are located. It doesn't tell us who's speaking. But the significance of the horns is interesting. You see, if the priest in Israel or if a ruler of Israel sinned or if the entire congregation of Israel sinned in some way, when a sacrifice was made to atone for that, to fix that, they would take the blood and place it on those horns of the golden altar. In addition to that, on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was also placed on those horns. And so because of this, those horns of the golden altar were seen by Israelis as the place of mercy, the place where you could 
find reconciliation with God if things went really bad. But it wasn't just for anyone. It wasn't just for an individual who sinned. If you were a regular person who had sinned and it hadn't affected the entire nation, well, the blood from your sin offering was placed on the horns of the brass altar, the altar of sacrifice that was outside the tabernacle, a different altar, a much larger altar, and, and that was the place of repentance for the individual sinner. The golden altar was the place of intercession. But even though that was a place where incense burned and not sacrifices, when a leader of the nation rebelled against God or the nation rebelled against God, it became a place of mediation, the place where the high priest would intercede with the blood so that the nation of Israel as a whole could be restored to the Lord. Now, we've already studied in the book of Revelation that Jesus is our high priest as well as our sacrifice, right? That not only does He offer His blood for us, offer His life for us, but He presents His blood before the Father too, right? We covered that when we studied Revelation chapter 8. But Jesus, He is also our ruler, our king, and He's also our mediator. And so, Jesus, He became our mediator, the one who would be that person like the high priest who would go on behalf of a nation that's gone astray or a leader that had gone astray to bring reconciliation for all the people with God. Jesus did that for us. And His blood pleads, the Bible says, better things than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel plead for? Justice, right? But what does the blood of Jesus plead for? Mercy, right? God show mercy. So it's significant that the very place that Jesus would have, as the atonement, the day of atonement, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, would have placed that blood on the altars, it's significant that this is the place that the voice says, bring judgment. Bring judgment. You see, turn to Hebrews 10 with me. I know we've covered this a couple times in the book of Revelation already, but, but I think it's important to highlight a couple aspects of it again this morning. Hebrews 10, 28. It says in Hebrews 10, 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. You ever read in your Bible and you come across something that you just go, wow, that sounds wrong? I do. I remember the very first time I read in the Old Testament when it, I think it's in Exodus and it mentions that while the Israel's in the wilderness and a guy went out to grab some sticks on the Sabbath day and they stoned him to death. I remember thinking, oh Lord, that seems a little, a little harsh, you know? I mean, he's just picking up a few sticks, you know? What, what if he's just bringing them home to pay, play pick up sticks with the kids? I mean, it seems a little harsh. But as you begin to examine the context around that passage, you understand that God has just instructed them on the Sabbath day is the day you don't do any work, it's the day you rest. And that what this guy was doing wasn't just out and about on a Saturday going, well, I need to get some firewood. And then all of a sudden as he's walking home, people are like, what are you doing? He's like, oh man, I forgot, too bad. No, 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 no. This is a guy who went out in defiance of what God said and said, I don't care what the Lord said. I got work to be done. And he went out and he did it anyway. Hebrews chapter 10, 28 says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. That's exactly what that's referring to. The word despised, it means to reject. God says, this is how it is. And you go, I don't care. I reject that. I'm doing my own thing. 
Now, if that was the case under the law of Moses with the people of God, the writer of Hebrews says this, of how much sore punishment, worse punishment, do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot, trampled the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, a common thing. Oh, it's no big deal. I mean, there's lots of different religions out there. And has done despite, has insulted the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of God who is trying to draw people to the Lord. Jesus, who is our mediator, our great high priest, the one whose blood pleads mercy for us. How much worse punishment do you suppose someone who goes, ah, that's nothing. I'm going to just keep going my way. How much worse punishment do you think they'll be worthy of? For we know him that has said, vengeance belongs unto me, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, another place in Scripture says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, mankind's leader, the Antichrist, he's not looking for mercy. Their priest, the the false prophet, he's not looking for mercy. They and everyone else who reject Christ's claim on the earth, they're not looking for mercy. They have dug their feet in. They've said, we don't need your mercy, Jesus. We'll be just fine if you leave us alone, Jesus. Go away. Bug off. And thus, while we don't know who this voice belongs to, the message is clear. At this place of prayer, at this place of intercession, there's only one thing pleading for you, and it's the blood of Jesus. And if you don't want that, there is nothing else here for you. There's nothing else to rescue you. There are no other prayers interceding for your well-being that have reached this altar before God's throne. And so if you won't seek Jesus' mercy as made possible by his blood on the horns of this altar... All that remains is judgment without mercy. And that's the context of the instructions. The six angel sounds and this voice says there is no other, they don't want the Lord's mercy, there is nothing left but judgment without mercy. And so he says to the sixth, whoever it is, says to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose, set free the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, or at, not inside, but at the great river Euphrates. Um, If you go dive into the river, you're not going to find any angels down there. It mentions they are bound there. The word means they've been imprisoned there. So who are these four angels who've been imprisoned in the Euphrates? Verse 15, it tells us that the four angels were set free. They were loosed. And it mentions that they had been prepared. They which were prepared refers to something that had been a completed action in the past and, and had ongoing results to the future. Somewhere in the past, these guys had been prepared or made ready for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now, the first thing we need to ask is, well, who is the one who prepared them for this? This is the same word that's used in Revelation 9-7 when it mentions the Shapes of the locusts were like unto horses that have been prepared unto battle. Now, who prepares a horse for battle? Its rider does, right? You know, the, the army does. Those who are going into battle, the general is telling them to prepare them to do this. And it mentions there in Revelation 9 at the end that these locusts do have a king over them, a general over them, the angel of the abyss. And so we would say with the demon locusts in the beginning of chapter 9, the fifth trumpet, that 
God permitted the locusts to do this, but the one who prepared them for this is the enemy, their leader, the angel of the abyss. And so since these angels, I can't think of any reason for faithful angels to be imprisoned. If By nature, if you're imprisoned, you're not a faithful angel. So these are fallen angels of some kind. And I could take in all sorts of weird rabbit trails and give you some guesses of mine about what these guys did to be in prison, but that wouldn't service anything this morning. So I encourage you to do your own studying on what that might be. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But whoever there are, these fallen angels, in the same way that the demon locusts had been prepared for what they were going to do by their king, these seem to have been prepared by the enemy as well, but God permits it to happen that they had been prepared to do this horrible thing by the enemy, but God in his mercy puts a, a restriction on their destruction. That the enemy planned for them to do something horrible and then God limits it. He limits them both by time and by uh, the, the span of how much they're going to accomplish. He says that they will be set free for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. Now, that can be confusing because you go, well, what is it, an hour, a day, a month, or a year? You can't be all at the same time. Literally in the Greek, it means that they were prepared into an hour on a specific day of a specific month of a specific year. In other words, they're only allowed to do this for an hour. Only an hour. They're only set free to wreak their destruction and death for an hour, and it explains what the purpose is, to slay the third part of mankind. So their time of destruction is limited, and the amount of people they're allowed to kill is restricted. That's the mercy of God. Because if God didn't restrict that, I promise you they would have done much more. Now, almost 8 billion people currently live on the earth. I don't know what that number will be when the Great Tribulation begins, but I do know that 25% of the world's population will already have been wiped out by the fourth seal. Many believers will be martyred before this trumpet judgment occurs. That means when 33% of the remaining population is wiped out, over half of the world's population will have been wiped out when this hour is over. Over, if it were our day, Four million people dead in the span of three years. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. We read about it in our scripture reading. People often confuse this passage and they, they try to find the rapture in it when Jesus isn't talking about the rapture. Jesus was asked three questions at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. The three questions were this. He said, tell us when shall these things be, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Secondly, what shall be the sign of your coming? Third, what shall be the end of the world? Those are the three questions that Jesus is answering. What will be the sign of your return? What will be the sign of the end of the world? And what, how will we know when the temple is going to be destroyed? And Jesus answers all three of those questions in order. And so in verse 37 of Matthew 24, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What were the days of Noah like? Verse 38. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, marrying, giving a marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they did not know, did not realize until the flood came and took them all away. Again, took them all away. Was that a good taking away? That's a bad taking away, all right? So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40. 
Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. I, I've heard people teach, well-meaning teachers, they'll say, oh, this is talking about the rapture, how you know, just kind of be going, all of a sudden, boof, one will be gone, and one will be, be left behind. Listen, this is, this is not a take me out to the ball game being taken, all right? This is, this is a bad taken, okay? This is where Jesus earlier, he says, they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. It's judgment. This is not a reference to the rapture. This is a reference to judgment. Jesus himself prophesied that 50% of the world's population would be wiped out in the judgments of the great tribulation, and we see the numbers here in the book of Revelation. Why do I bring this up? Because I have heard some say, well, when I see all this stuff you're talking about, Pastor, will happen, then I'll know, okay, now it's time to get right with God. Listen, you do not want to test your odds. It is literally a coin flip. 50%, it's a coin flip. Whether you die or whether you survive. You do not want to test your odds by being in this period of judgment because you rejected God's sweet offer of grace right now. You do not. Now, the idea of this many people dying in the span of an hour is absolutely impossible for me to comprehend. I have been at the bedside of dear saints if they've breathed their last and gone home to be with the Lord. And, and that is hard enough as it is when I know where they're going, that they're with the Lord. And, and you see them expire and, and you think, I know they're okay, but wow, that's just heavy. The fact that I'm not going to be able to interact with them again in this life. I cannot fathom the idea of this many people dying in one hour. How is it even possible when we study what these guys are and how they kill people? It's just horrifying. Verse 16, it tells us, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. So it's not just that John is describing a large group of people by a word that, you know, you can, it cannot, this word can also be used. It's the word myriad, which is just, you know, there's myriads of them. You know, there's just you know, a lot of them. No, no. John says, I heard the number of them. They were counted off. 20, 200, I'm sorry, not 20, 200 million cavalry. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, Pastor, time out. Where'd the cavalry come from here? I thought four angels were set three. True. And I don't know how, but for whatever reason, these 200 million horsemen and horse come with them. Now, because of the size of this army, um, many connect them with the army in Revelation 16, I believe, verse 12. Revelation 16, verse 12 says, and the sixth angel poured out his vial, so now we are a couple years later in the bold judgments, and it mentions that the sixth bold judgment, so the next to last bold judgment, he, the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And so because of the mention of the Euphrates River here as well, because of the mention of this great army that's coming from the far east, um, many connect, say that that's this army in Revelation 16. There was a Time article about 50 years ago that stated China claimed it could field a 200 million man army. People make boasts all the time about things, doesn't make it true. Um, and a lot of Christians have latched on to that Time article um, and, and have said, oh, this is China. You know, this is, this is, you know, the Far Eastern army. 
Because many believe China will spearhead the forces known as the kings of the east, and because the Euphrates River is mentioned in both of these sections of Scripture, many prophecy teachers link the cavalry in chapter 9 with the human army in chapter 16. This is problematic, though. China's current standing army is just over 3 million personnel. The Department of Defense put out a report in 2020 that stated that China has an active army of 1.4 million men. That is a far cry from the number 200 million, especially when we consider the fact that one quarter of the world's population will die in the fourth seal judgment. I can't imagine that there's that many people left in China to field that size of an army after all this judgment has occurred. Another issue with this viewpoint is that the destruction of Revelation chapter 9 occurs in one hour compared to the event of Revelation 16, which outlines something that occurs a couple years after the events of Revelation chapter 9. A final problem with this viewpoint is the description of the cavalry, which is like no horse I've ever seen in my life. It is horrifyingly similar to the demon locust of the fifth trumpet judgment. Look at verse 17 through 19. And thus I saw, or this is how I, he says, he's not saying they looked like this. He goes, no, this is what I saw. Thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them. So both the horses and their riders are equally horrifying. Now it starts off and it says that they were wearing, both the horse and the rider, breastplates of fire or fiery red and of jacinth, jacinth is a, is a blue, and brimstone, which is like a sulfurous yellow. Um, those are not the colors of any, there are the colors of a few small nations, but no large nation in the world. Uh, but even if you saw someone in, you know, uh, you know red, blue, and yellow colors on their, on their breastplate, it's not like you go, ah, you know, it's just colors. Mentions also that the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. Um, that's a bit more ominous than normal horses, but still not so horrifying. I imagine if I went out during fall festival to where the ponies were out there and went to go put my child on the horse and the thing turned to me with a lion's face, I'd be a little freaked out. But still not the worst, most horrifying thing you've ever seen. But then it says this, and out of their mouths, out of these lions, lion-type mouths, faces, their, their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone and by these three was the third part of men killed. What three? By the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which issues out of their mouths. That is not like any horse I've ever met. It's not like any creature I've ever met. Now, smoke and fire and brimstone are all words that are used in the Bible to describe judgment and destruction. And that's exactly what their breath brings. And it tells us why. For their power is in their mouth, their authority to act, their jurisdiction, their permission from God to kill. It comes from their mouth. And it also says it comes from their tails. Now, it doesn't tell us what their tails do, but it does describe what they are. It says, for their tails were like unto serpents. Again, never met a snake that had a, uh, uh, I'm sorry, never met a horse that had a tail like a snake, you know? Horse has that, you know, that's why we call it a ponytail, ladies. It looks cute, you know? This is not a cute ponytail, all right? This is a slithering snake-like thing at the end, and it doesn't even look like a normal snake because it's got heads at the end of it, and those heads are breathing out fire, brimstone, and smoke, and killing people. 
Now, some have tried to find modern weaponry in this, that the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, they refer to missiles and rockets and bombs that modern weapons launch in combat. And while it is possible that the Lord could use natural events or man-made things to accomplish His purposes in these judgments, it's not necessary to try to explain supernatural events via natural means. And given that the fifth trumpet, which comes right before, is referring to demonic forces, I would say it's more consistent with the context to see these as demonic forces as well. You say, well, that's a lot of demons, 200 million demons? I didn't know there were that many. Well, Revelation 5.11 tells us that there are more faithful angels than that, so it shouldn't surprise us that there would be that many fallen angels. And given that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians overnight in the book of Isaiah, what kind of damage could all these angels do in one hour? quite a bit, one-third of the world's population. And yet, as horrifying as that is, look at what verse 20 and 21 says. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They still didn't. The phrase, the rest, it means those that survived. And, and these are not people who were like, oh, oh, man, stinks to be you. I guess my coin flip turned up heads. I'm okay. No, everyone's affected by this. It says, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues. The word there, plagues, it means to, um, the condition of someone who's been severely wounded. I don't know if this is like, you know, if people can see these, these demons or, or they, it's unseen and they inflict them with some plague that nobody can figure out what it is and, and everybody gets sick but only a third of the people die? I don't know. All I know is this, it, is, it affects everybody, everybody. And those who survive, whatever this is that these guys do in an hour, it says they still don't repent of the works of their hands. The word repent, it means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of mind. Repentance means a radical break with the past. It means conversion. It's a decisive change to turn away from my sin and to turn in faith towards Christ. Now, lest you think I mean that you, if you're not perfect, you haven't repented, repentance is not represented by perfection but it is represented by the mindset described in Proverbs 24, 16. Proverbs 24, 16 is a verse you've probably heard many times, but I think it would be good to look at it in detail for a moment. Proverbs 24, 16, for a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. A just man is someone who's right with the Lord, a righteous man, someone who's right with God, someone who's in a right relationship with God. The Bible says that, well, he falls seven times, but he rises again. In contrast to that, the wicked, someone who's not right with God, someone who's lost, someone who's not saved, well, they fall into calamity or ruin is what mischief means there. Now, the two words for fall here are different words in the Hebrew. It's very interesting. The first fall, the, what the right, happens to the righteous, it means to fall short, to fail, to be cast down, to be defeated. Another one, in other words, someone who is right with God may lose battles to sin, but they get back up and they go back into the fight, 
right? Is the mindset is that, well, I'm following Jesus. My heart's desire is to not be defeated by sin. My heart's desire is to overcome because he promised I would overcome. And so when I do get defeated, you get back up again and go back into the fight. You keep following Jesus. Lord, I'm sorry, I blew it. I don't want to do that anymore. And I want to keep following you, right? That's, that's a mindset of repentance. That's the mindset of a believer, the second word for fall here, it does not mean that. It's a completely different word. It means to stagger or stumble or totter. And I think the best illustration I can give is from Scripture on what this means. The, the, in, in the book of Genesis, I want to say chapter 19, might not be right, but I think it's chapter 19 where the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah occurs. If you remember, when the angels came into the city to bring Lot and his family out, it says that they went into the city and Lot saw them at the gate and they said, hey, you know, where are you guys staying? They're like, oh, we'll just stay out here for the night. And Lot's like, you don't want to do that in this city. Come stay with me. And so Lot brings them into his home. And it mentions that all of the homosexuals in the city, they surrounded Lot's house and they demanded that Saul bring out these two men that they could rape them, have their way with them. And so Lot comes out and he says, no, 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 you're not going to do this evil thing. They're my guests. They're under my protection. No way. And so they said, really? Well, then we'll just do our thing with you. And the moment they begin to assault Lot, the two angels step out, and they supernaturally blind all the homosexuals. And do you know what the Scripture says? And they were staggering to towards the house, trying to find the doorknob so that they could break in and still rape these two men even though God struck them blind. That's what this word here in Proverbs 24, 16 refers to. Staggering, tottering, toward ruin, toward destruction. Even though God had blinded them, even though God was attempting to get them to see the folly of their ways by taking away their ability to see, they were tottering toward their own ruin, reaching for the very things that God sought to turn them away from. And that's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Of its 34 uses of the verb repent in the New Testament, 12 of them are in the book of Revelation. A third of them. God's heart in this entire book and all these judgments is seeking to draw men to repentance, to get their attention, to get them to turn from their sin. God is seeking with all of his love to turn the hearts of the wicked toward him, but they refuse. They'd rather have their way and the judgment it brings. For it says they would not repent of the works of their hands to turn to the work that Christ did. The world screams time and time again in the great tribulation, we don't need you, God. We've got everything under control. Leave us alone. Let us live the way we want. So how do they want to live? Well, it tells us that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither did they repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. They won't repent because they love these things more. They don't want to lose these things. They still want their idols. It's interesting that John mentions that it's the worship of demons. Psalm 106 verse 37 equates human sacrifices to idols 
to worshiping demons. Paul echoed this idea uh, in regard to food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter, I think it's 10 verse 21. Paul says, 10 verse 20, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I would not that you should have fellowship with demons. For whatever reason, demons seem somehow to interpret worship for idols as worship towards them. And they are the instigators behind idolatry. They long for that attention. They long for that worship. Maybe you think, well, that's something mankind used to do, Pastor Will. That's not something I see a lot of. Well, it's not just a thing of the past. I just had lunch the other day with a friend, and our server was wearing pagan jewelry. And when asked about what they were, because they were definitely odd-looking, they said they was for protection and blessing, you know? for my protection. These are not things that are just things of the past. And the Lord, he commands us to lay down such powerless things because they can't talk to us. They can't hear our prayers. They can't go before us, behind us, above us, and below us to protect us like the Lord does. They can't see our needs before we ask, and they can't help us when we do ask. They're powerless. They're worthless. That's why the very word idol, it means an empty thing, a vain thing can do nothing for you. But these survivors refuse to give them up. They refuse to bend the knee to the Lord, stumbling towards their idols instead. My exhortation to you this morning is if you have idols in your life, get rid of them. Worship the Lord. It also says, neither did they repent of their murders. In 2019, there were 16,425 reported homicide cases in the U.S. It's in one year. There were 1.2 million emergency department visits for assault last, in, in that year, 2019. Over 400,000 people die from homicide per year in the world. And while that number is low compared to the 8 billion people who live in the world, my question is, why is that number even there at all? Why are 400,000 people getting murdered every year? And the Bible says it will only get worse. Homicide in the U.S. rose by 18% from 2019 to 2020, and it's headed for a similar increase this year. Jesus said that a sign of the end times would be men causing other heart, others' hearts to grow cold. And that's exactly how Jesus defines murder. He says it's anger of the heart, where you don't have love towards someone, but you have anger towards someone in your heart. And when moral restraint is cast off, people act on that. They act on that anger. We must choose to reject that notion, to not allow anyone to cause our hearts to grow cold, but to yield our hearts to the Lord that he might fill it with his love that we'd have a heart for the lost, we have a heart for our brothers and sisters, our heart for our neighbor. We can't allow that to happen to us too. Mentions that they would not repent of their sorceries. This is the word pharmakon in the Greek. It it means the use of drugs to elevate one's natural, mental or spiritual state. I was not exposed to alcohol or drugs as a a young person, it's not been a part of my life as an adult. I, I grew up in kind of a sheltered environment, and I, 
I didn't think, I think all, they would, you know, have, take us through, you know, special speakers would come in in high school, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and tell us to be drug free and, you know, all these things, tell us about the dangers of alcohol and things like that. And, you know, I was just kind of, I didn't even pay attention because I thought, does anybody even do that stuff? And then I became an adult. And I've seen many a person throw away what was dear to them because they refuse to give up a substance that elevates how they think or how they feel. Now, I need to clarify. It is different to be someone who battles a substance abuse problem. To, you know it's wrong, but you're losing battles, you know? Well, we already covered that. The righteous person, that can happen, but they get up after that loss, right? When they lose that battle, they get back up again. They get back into the fight, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who ignores what God's word says and continues to stumble towards their cravings despite all the speed bumps that God puts in their way. One U.S. study I read says that one in every eight adults meet diagnostic criteria for alcohol abuse. In 2017, 30% of adults in the U.S. battled illicit drug use. I have watched... I engage with ministers sometimes. And of course, a hot topic that always comes up is alcohol and pastors. And they'll be baffled. So I had one guy one time, he was baffled. He said, I don't understand why I've set my congregation so much when I mention I have a drink every once in a while. I said, what do you, how are you surprised by that? One in eight people in your congregation are battling it. And you're gonna just mention, yeah, it's cool for me. When I see that stuff, all I see is skull and crossbones. I've watched marriages, careers, testimonies, and even ministries destroyed because of drugs and alcohol. And my encouragement to you is don't play around with that stuff. It's not worth the cost. Let's be those who purpose to have nothing master our lives but the Spirit of God, amen? It mentions that they would not repent of their fornication, but just it's, the word can be used specifically and generally. Here, the general use is, is in mind. It means to engage in any sexual activity that's outside God's standard. I, I don't have time this morning to give you all the data on that topic. Whether it's the fact that 95% of adults who are 40 or older in the U.S. say they've had sex before marriage, or the fact that 20% of married people in the U.S. have had an affair, or that 5% of adults in the U.S. consider themselves to fall into a category that's outside biblical marriage, whichever number you pick, our society is inundated with sexual activity outside God's standard. And rather than lay down this craving for unbiblical sexual activity, they will stumble towards it to their own destruction. Now, this is obviously a sensitive topic today. And people will say, well, I don't, I don't feel like God's way is the best way as it concerns sex. I think, I think there's a better way, and I feel like there's a better way for me. Maybe that works for you, but I feel like there's a better way for me. I, I feel like I'm not a man, I'm a woman, or I'm, I'm not a woman, I'm a man. Or I, I feel like, you know, I, I should dress like a woman, but stay a man, and act like a woman, even though I'm going to, I mean, there's all sorts of things that people are saying, well, I feel this way about who I am. If I woke up tomorrow and I felt like a woman, not likely, but let's say it happened, 
How is that any different from any other day I wake up and I don't feel like doing something God tells me to do? It's not different at all. I wake up on many days and don't feel like doing what God tells me to do. There are many things in life I don't feel like doing, but I do them because they're right. We are not animals led about by whatever our current physical or emotional craving may be. We are image bearers. We have been created in the image of God. We are the crowning jewel of God's creation, not some mole rat walking around the ground. We are those that Jesus died on the cross for. And I'm very glad that Jesus went to the cross even though he didn't feel like doing it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as my creator and as my savior, I owe him the same. If you are battling that where you wake up or you feel like you're something other than you are, I'm not belittling that. There's lots of things I feel that aren't good. There are days I feel like I don't feel like being a good husband. I don't feel like being a good dad. And lo and behold, this may shock you, but there are days I don't feel like being a good pastor. There are days I don't like God's people. Not you, of course. (laughs) The other God's people. There was a joke I told about a guy who woke up in the morning and his wife said, you know, she was already up. She was getting ready. He said, hey, babe, you're going to get up? It's you know, time for church. And he said, I don't want to go. He said, well, sweetie, I mean, the kids are getting ready. I'm almost ready. You need to get up. We need to go to church. I don't want to go. And finally, when she gave him a hard time again, he said, give me one good reason why I should go to church this morning. And she said, I'll give you two. First, it's the Lord's Day, and our family goes to church. And second, you're the pastor. Get out of bed. <laughs> You guys are very gracious that you still laugh at that joke after I've told it for the 74th time. <laughs> There's lots of stuff that we may not feel like doing, and we may even have good reasons why we feel that way. But we don't do things because we feel like doing it. We do it because we love Jesus, right? We do it because we want to please the Lord. We do it because... He did it for us. You know, the, the call to deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow Jesus, that, that, that doesn't come with happy thoughts, right? The flesh isn't going, oh, can't wait to do that. Where can, where can I find, here, I'll put my arms out so you can put the nails in. The flesh doesn't want to die. It wants to survive. It wants to live. It wants to feed, and it's never satisfied. That's why the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. So what do you do if you're struggling with how you identify? Well, you stop listening to people who aren't saying what God's word says. And you go to the scripture. You say, God, what do you say? I'm confused right now. it, It feels strong. It feels right. It feels real. You say, God, what do you say? And the Lord He renews our minds. He fills us with his spirit so we can overcome the flesh. It says they also did not repent of their thefts. Recent report says 75% of employees have stolen from their employer at least once. A study I read from a few years ago of 
12,000 employees in a company found that 90% of them had engaged in workplace fraud of some kind. Paul, his testimony as it concerned the finances of the ministry, he said in 2 Corinthians 8.21 that he provided for honest things not only in the sight of the Lord but also in the sight of men. He conducted himself in such a way that everyone knew, not just the Lord, but people knew he was being honest. He wasn't a thief. That should be our testimony too. Now, what's the point of bringing up all those statistics? Well, it's not to highlight a bunch of sins and to send all of you into a panic about whether you're saved or not. (laughs) A pastor friend of mine was asked, if a person can live in sin but still go to heaven, and I think his reply was very wise. He said to that individual, if you'd be willing to go to hell to hold on to your sin, shouldn't that concern you? And that's what I would say to you this morning. If you're living in one of these areas of sin, it's not a matter of, well, am I saved, pastor? My my question would be is, if you're willing to hold on to it at the cost of possibly spending eternity apart from the Lord, you should be concerned about that attitude. Because remember, what's repentance? It's a mindset. It's an attitude that even though it loses battle sometimes, it gets back up and gets back into the fight again. Amen? We want to have a different mindset towards sin than these survivors have. Because as I said earlier, the worst horror of these verses is not the demonic cavalry or even their four fallen angel leaders. It's that the world still clings to its sin afterwards and doesn't repent. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, as the worship team comes up to close us out, it tells us to walk worthy of our calling. Paul spends the first three chapters saying, this is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, blessed with all spiritual blessings. Now in light of that, walk worthy of your calling. And that word worthy is an interesting word. It was an economic word. It was when you would come to the merchant and you would want to purchase a certain amount of stuff, he would ask you how many? He said, well, three shekels worth. And you put your three shekels down on the scale. And then he would weigh out whatever the product was until it measured up, till the balance was equal that the three shekels measured out equally with how much you said you were going to purchase. And that's what it says. Jesus has risen, caused us to be in, you know, seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You know, he has done this awesome thing for us. Now let's live lives that match up to that. That's what he's saying. You see, the Christian, he understands, she understands what Jesus has done for them. They understand that their goal is to live a life that matches who they've been raised up to be. It understands that we're loved and it seeks to love Jesus back with our entire heart. And so my question to you this morning is, is that what you long for? To love him back with your entire heart. Let's stand. Lord, you know every heart that's here this morning. You know where we're at with you. Lord, you know if we're battling in the midst of sin. You know if we've been ignoring you. Lord, you know if our hearts are repentant or if we've been hardening them. So I pray for every person here that you would speak to hearts of your great love, of your great mercy, even as we've sung of it all morning. Lord, that it would melt our hearts in such a way that we would run to you 
Always run to you. To run to that place of mercy. Grab hold of the horns of the altar knowing that our Savior has interceded for us. He has mediated for us with blood that speaks better things than Abel's blood. With blood that doesn't speak of judgment like these experience here, but it speaks of forgiveness, restoration, help, victory. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus, and we want to love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.